Good evening and welcome back to Masks Weekly Radio Show on Family Matters. Masks, mothers and fathers aligned, saving kids, kids of all ages and all stages for all mental health struggles, including addiction. If you know someone that needs a referral for a therapist, an inpatient or outpatient program, please give them our number, 718-758-0400. And all calls are strictly confidential. We also offer Zoom parenting classes for support. So I will repeat our number. Maybe you want to write it down for yourself, a loved one, a neighbor, or someone you sit next to usually in shul. Our number again, 718-758-0400. Groups are Sunday night Dr. Shmuel Brachfeld and Dr. Debbie Ackman runs group in Crown Heights. Monday night is Dr. Debbie Ackman on Zoom. We have Dr. Trish Atia that runs an in-person group in Flatbush. And Wednesday night, Rabbi Dr. Ben-Sion Tversky. So feel free to give us a call if you'd like to register for those Zoom meetings. Tonight, I'm really very grateful to be able to have on with us someone that we really have been after to try and discuss uh, the struggling of families that struggle with disordered eating, and that is Dr. Marcy Forta, who works with eating disorders, education, awareness, and prevention focusing specifically on prevention in the Jewish Orthodox adolescent community. And I would like to welcome you on. How are you? Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I just want to say that I am very impressed with what MASK does. And it's so important and vital, the services that you provide, the support, the resources, um, the help. It's just so amazing. Thank you, Dr. Forta. And you are very, very, very busy these days. There's a lot of conversation these days about eating disorders. So many families have been struggling as a result of being home even during COVID. And those adolescents possibly started even during COVID as not having teenagers, their friends, not being able to get out, being home so long. Let's talk about how serious they are and how serious they can be. Um, Great question. So just so we put it out there, there's been an over 60% increases of uh, cases reported of eating disorders since the onset of COVID. 
So it is very, it has been very serious, but it continues to be um, recent, more recently. But eating disorders actually have the second highest mortality rate in adolescents, second only to drug overdose. One death every 52 minutes, that is 10,200 deaths each year could be attributed to an eating disorder. And people with eating disorder symptoms are really 11 times more likely to attempt suicide. That means about 26% of people with eating disorders attempt suicide. Uh, there is a study actually that found those who are struggling with anorexia are 56 times more likely to attempt or try to commit suicide than someone without an eating disorder. So um, it, they're very devastating, they're very dangerous. Uh, the rate at which people with eating disorders misuse alcohol or drugs is five times more than the general population. Um, so they can be quite difficult. Yeah, I, but I do want to give hope to families. Uh, you know, you hear all these percentages and the numbers were so elevated as a result of COVID, like you said. Mm -hmm. um, but there is treatment available. Absolutely. And I want parents to understand that there is hope. We never give up. And it's about education and prevention and also, I want to touch on that parents really need to be educated when they're seeing some red flags from their loved ones that may be struggling, not to just react first to get educated. Absolutely. So, yeah, let's talk about how prevalent the eating disorders are in general. Sure. And is it the same or different from the from community. Yeah, and I do wanna agree with you. Um, treatment is very possible and success rates can be great. The earlier you notice um, issues with eating or a problem with your child, the better off you are, but absolutely there are great treatments available nowadays for that. Um, actually, eating disorders are more prevalent than people think. Between nine and 12% of the general population will be diagnosed with an eating disorder in their lifetime. That equates to about 29.8 million Americans, but about 70 million people worldwide. Now, when I say a diagnosable disorder, that's just somebody, uh, those are the people who actually get diagnosed, but that's not all people who might be struggling uh, with food issues in general. 95% uh, of people who are diagnosed with an eating disorder are between the ages of 12 and 25 years old. And sadly, only one in five adolescent girls get help for an eating disorder, whereas in the adult population, it's about one in 10. Um, so for our community, uh, you know, the from community, due to the insular nature of our communities, there's not a ton of empirical study overall, but there are several studies that do show that Jewish Orthodox females are up to twice as likely to develop a disorder. So if I can just put that in context, regular, the regular population is between nine and 12%. That's between 18 and 24% of us that will be affected by an eating disorder at some point in our lifetime. So it's pretty high. Wow, very high, yes. So I think it's important that we um, speak about the difference between disordered eating and eating disorders. Yes, great question. A lot of people use that terminology very interchangeably, but they're not the same. Um, disordered eating, I, I would categorize it as a broad term, uh, referring to kind of disturbed eating practices, maybe not severe enough to warrant diagnosis. So 
there might be thoughts, some specific behaviors or attitudes that are related to eating disorders. Even they might have some weight or shape fixation, possibly a compensatory behavior, such as a lot of exercising or uh, maybe some purging, but really it's not impairing them like an eating disorder does. They're not completely obsessed and taken with those thoughts. Um, the scale of the disturbance is not the same. There might be a, a, some disturbance and we have to be careful and get them treatment because it could go into a, an eating disorder, but they're still functional, functional and not nearly as impaired. Um, you could fit, like some examples might be, you know, someone who says I have to drink eight ounces of water before every meal, or I'm only going to eat at certain times of the day, or maybe I might eat my food in a certain order or chew it a certain number of times. These might all be disturbed eating practices. Um, so someone with disordered eating issues can still use help working to, I guess, reduce or eliminate those behaviors because they can be precursors to a full blown disorder. But, um, when you have an eating disorder, that's severe disturbance in eating behaviors and all the related thoughts and emotions. They're just completely preoccupied with food and their weight. So a friend of mine talks about this concept of the mind share continuum. So if you can picture someone's brain and how, how their thoughts are full, if you look at someone with an eating disorder, their brain is full of thoughts about their weight, their shape, their size, what they're eating, when they're eating it. They have nothing else that they think about all day. They're obsessed with these thoughts. When they sleep, they're thinking about this. It's, it's completely, um, they're absorbed in it. That's an eating disorder. Um, but disordered eating is kind of those behaviors that could be indicative of an, an onset, but it's not necessarily that. Well, not all eating disorders are very clear cut. Correct. That's true. So... Let's explain why. Um, okay. Like some of the risks of eating disorders. Sure. So it's difficult because there are many risk factors for eating disorders, but none, none of them will guarantee that someone will be affected by an eating disorder. So, you know, there are many times when, let's say, one person who's in a similar life situation as somebody else in a circumstance might develop an eating disorder, but someone else would not. Why would that be? That's very difficult to say. We do have genetic predispositions for eating disorders. And interestingly, there's been studies recently that came out and talked about the fact that up to, um, for anorexia and bulimia, up to 60% of your risk for getting a disorder like that is, in, is inherited. For binge eating disorder, it's about 45%. So if you have a really high genetic predisposition, and then you have some risk factors or trigger factors, then you might be more predisposed, obviously, to um, get anorexia or bulimia. Um, we have things that are called predisposing factors. So things that might predispose someone to get an eating disorder, maybe uh, a family issue, a trait that they have, maybe the culture, just the culture that they're in. Uh, and then there are things called trigger factors which is any psychological factor that might predispose them or lead them to increase vulnerability or behavior to change. Uh, any kind of traumatic event or circumstance that might lead them to be triggered. Um, and then finally, you have like those maintenance factors, maybe things such as positive endorsements for weight loss or emotions that are lessened when you uh, eat or purge. So some of, the, some of the general risk factors for eating disorders, um, include genetics, which we talked a little bit about, social, 
which are thin body ideals, any unrealistic body expectations due to media exposure. Um, there are familial risk factors. The family environment can be responsible for the creation and or maintenance of some of the risk factors as well. That's a very hard category, it's very broad. And then you have personality uh, factors that increase risk. People who are perfectionists, um, somebody who is just tends to be a more negative person or are behaviorally inflexible. Even people who are shyer or more inhibited have a higher risk for an eating disorder. Um, and then you have psychological factors, um, feelings of powerlessness, um, any early adverse psychological experience or trauma, or if they have a kind of an inability or difficulty in regulating their emotions. Yeah, there are a few more, but go ahead. No, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to bring out that mo most people think that it's only girls that have eating disorders. Mm -hmm. You're right, but it's not true. <laughs> right, so can you elaborate on that? Sure. Um, girls are two times as likely to have an eating disorder, but that doesn't mean males, boys, men, young men uh, don't get eating disorders. They absolutely do, and they absolutely do in the front community. Their risks, their symptoms and signs are a little bit different than girls. Um, I have experienced recently a lot of boys in the firm community that are struggling with um, eating issues and, and eating disorders, but um, I do specialize right now in the programs that I'm doing in helping girls. Uh, I plan on, I actually have a team of people assembled to work on boys after we get our programs in the schools for the girls. But yes, it's sadly, boys are affected. It's, it's about muscle tone sometimes with them or being built in a certain way. It's a little different, the issues that they face than girls do. And the community, the from community, um, I mean, they have different and additional risk factors. They do. Right. Yeah. And is that the same difference with boys and girls in the from community? Um, I would say some, there is going to be some overlap, definitely stigma, stigma of mental health issues, of course, even though we've gotten better about that, but eating disorders in the firm community have carry a higher sting, stigma than other mental health diagnoses. Um, so yes, definitely stigma, um, food, of course, you know, we have a, a, just an abundance of food in our lives, um, and how it's used in our homes, that, that can be an issue for sure. Of course, family unit, how, how your parents and, and, and anyone in your family really models their relationship with food, how they feel about themselves, how they talk about their bodies to you. Um, and there are pressures. A lot of these definitely are similar. I'd like to bring up the topic of bulimia. Okay. Um, for some, people they feel like okay bulimia they just have to see a therapist once a week can you discuss uh the connection between eating disorders and bulimia please okay so um let's talk about i guess what bulimia is yes first please. okay um bulimia is um recurrent episodes of binge eating which where the intake of like excessively large amounts of food, something that normally you would never be able to eat that much at once. Um, and during these episodes, a person feels a lack of a sense of control over their eating. Um, and then they follow these binges with compensatory behavior. So either they'll do extreme exercise, they might um, do self induced vomiting, they might use laxatives, 
uh, to compensate for eating so much food. And in order to actually be diagnosed with bulimia, you have to engage in these behaviors at least one time per week for a minimum of three months. Um, so, yeah. So I think it's, I think it's important that people understand that that goes under the umbrella of disordered eating. Let's go back to the diff the different definitions, disordered eating and eating disorders. Okay. Well, bulimia is really, it, you could have, you could have episodes of bulimia, bulimic episodes, I guess, and have disordered eating. But if you are really having one, at least one binge and purge per week for several right. months, then it crossed yeah. over to an eating disorder. Right. Got it. Correct. But so. just so you know, up most 87% or more of people who have an eating disorder also have some other kind of comorbid mental health condition that they're struggling with. So they're not just treated for their disorder. Usually they have anxiety, maybe depression, maybe social appearance anxiety, maybe they've suffered a trauma. Um, there's usually other issues going on. It's not just the eating disorder. Um, so you can't just say, oh, we'll get a little therapy and they'll be fine. It's kind of a whole team of people that have to help. Yes, that is always our recommendation that we do send them to have a team approach. Um, so Dr. Forta, let's talk about your work. You do work in prevention and education around eating disorders. And uh, the name of your organization that you created is Me. Let's speak a little bit about what made you create that organization and why you thought it was so needed and effective. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm excited to talk about that, actually. Um, about 10 years ago, I owned a women and girls DS clothing store. Um, and I did that for about 12 years. It was a really wonderful experience, but I, I saw the struggle of the girls, the girls turning to young ladies, turning to women, their changing bodies, how they felt about that. I watched mothers bring their daughters to shop and shop for themselves. So many mothers apologizing to me. Oh, I haven't yet lost my baby weight, but I'm going to buy these clothes because I promised myself within three months, you know, I'm getting back to my weight. Just a lot of struggling around buying clothes, appearance, looking at themselves. Um, and I sold the store. Um, I, I personally struggled with an eating disorder when I was a teen. Um, I was very fortunate to get the help that I needed and to be able to have a family and Baruch Hashem, like that was behind me. But I know intimately what the eating disorder struggle is. So my background is actually in business. Um, and for me, I wanted to figure out how can I help girls feel better about themselves from the inside out, kind of appreciate their unique self, um, what's special about them, the, the, the talents, abilities, things Hashem blessed them with, and, and stop focusing only on their outside appearance. Um, so I, that's what I focused on in my, in my work. I, I know that eating disorders are devastating. They're complicated. And so we need a lot of people to help them. That's great. What I do mostly is in prevention, awareness, and education, because if you don't know about them and you don't know their signs and symptoms and what the risk factors are for them and how we can change the conversations around food and body and image, then we can't make those changes. So 
we, the research does show that health promotion approaches really have had measurable and long-term success. 76% of kids who learned about body confidence really did feel more positive about themselves. But the research also shows that the, the programs have to be tailored for the audience. And our community is a special audience, right? Um, it also showed that adolescence is the optimal stage to implement prevention programs. The idea is we have to promote self-acceptance, lowering that body and weight stigma, and then reducing self-criticism, all while uh, increasing self-compassion. So I created OTSME. When I learned a lot about prevention, I trained in some of the secular programs that they have out there for eating disorder prevention. What I found was they don't go far enough and they weren't created with our perspectives and cultural sensitivities in mind. They only look at eating disorders. They don't just look at body image, self-compassion, body acceptance. Um, so I decided to create OTSME to do more. Um, our vision really is to allow each and every Jewish teenage girl to find and accept her unique self. Um, like I said, we design our programs to improve self-compassion, body acceptance, support healthy relationships, and then reduce that focus on outward appearances. But that supports, uh, there's so many programs out there. Tell me why your program is so different than any that exists. Okay, so our approach really is three-pronged. So we, we do programs with the girls in eighth grade, 10th grade, and 12th grade. We also do educational programs for the parents that help them better understand um, the idea of health over thinness, how to help their daughters avoid dangerous uh, pitfalls, I guess, in their relationships to their bodies, um, and, and, and just their feelings about food and eating and giving them knowledge about a better understanding of disordered eating and eating disorders. So that's really key, because if you just educate the girls, but the parents don't understand, then you've kind of it's kind of lost in translation. And we also go into the schools and educate the educators because weight bias, stigma, bullying, societal expectations, appearance ideal, all these things um, happen in schools. A lot of them happen with teachers in schools inadvertently, of course, but it's really important that they learn how to recognize the signs and symptoms as well, but to understand how they might, you know, be reinforcing some of these ideals and stigmas. Um, I think it's important for those that may have come on late that you uh, just give us an explanation once again about the difference between eating disorders and disordered eating, please. Okay, so what I would say is the best way to, to distinguish it is really just the level of how difficult, uh, how pervasive and how difficult it is for the person struggling from it. Is it, you know, um, all encompassing um, where they, they it's, it's something that they're just thinking of all the time. Um, it's severe disturbances in their behaviors and their related thoughts and emotions. You can't reason with them. It's kind of irrational almost. Or is it that they're just struggling with their body image and they're implementing some disordered eating practices, um, but, but they're still kind of in a place where uh, it's not an all-encompassing struggle that's 24-7. Because I don't know, you know, there's the idea of the eating disorder voice that I talk about sometimes in some of my um, educational programs. And there really is a voice that is talking to this girl, telling her she's not good enough, telling her she won't, she, you know, she'll never be good enough, telling her she's a failure. This voice is a very specific uh, voice to an, a clinically diagnosable disorder.
and it's very pervasive. So can there there are different types of eating disorders. Uh, could you name some, please? Sure. The most popular, but actually not the most prevalent, is anorexia nervosa, which people know about. Obviously, that's kind of people having that intense fear of gaining weight. They, they restrict what they eat in calories. Um, they assume that people with anorexia are thin, but actually there is such a thing as atypical anorexia where the person is not thin, but does severe restricting. So there are different types of anorexia, but, but that, that's one people think of. Um, and there's bulimia, which we discussed a little bit about those binge eating episodes and those compensatory behaviors, uh, such as exercise, laxative use, and vomiting. Um, there's something called binge eating disorder, which is different from bulimia because the binges don't have those uh, compensatory behaviors. So um, they just eat those excessive amounts of food. Um, and it also, you know, does not necessarily uh, occur with an anorexia or bulimia episode. And then there's something called ARFID, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. get a lot of calls about that. So I'm glad you're bringing that up. Thank you. Sure. That sometimes people think of that as like extreme picky eating, which impacts children mostly, but I've, I've seen it even when in adults, because people with ARFID, it's not necessarily about their body image, but it's a real genuine lack of interest in eating food, right? They just, they get full quickly. They have sensory avoidance. They might have issues with the food tastes or the textures, the temperature of the food, the smell of the food. Um, and they fear aversive consequences for their eating, such as they think they might vomit if they eat, or they might choke. They might have some allergic reaction or get sick. So it's, it's kind of a difficult one. ARFID is not a typical eating disorder. And then the last one that's in the DSM is called OSFED, which is other specified feeding or eating disorder. Um, really, the idea is that these people have very extremely disturbed eating habits, distorted body image, and that, you know, that valuation of their whole self based on their body shape and weight and that fear of gaining weight. So atypical anorexia is actually considered as OSFED or someone who might have a purging disorder where they only, they use the compensatory behaviors, they might vomit all the time or use laxatives, but they don't have any binges that precipitate this behavior. Um, yeah. Right, well, thank you. And then there are examples of disordered eating like the fad diets, the cleanses, skipping mm -hmm. meals, supplement misuse, diet pills, um, extreme social media focused on appearance, food, under-eating, over-eating, and there's so much more to this conversation that we can have, but we're running out of time. I'd like to thank you, Dr. Porter, for making the time tonight for coming on and hope to have you on again soon. Thank you so much for inviting me here. And again, thank you so much for what MASK does for everybody. It's so important and I so appreciate it and value it. Thank you. And I want to wish everyone a very good evening, a beautiful Shabbos. And always remember, hang in, hold on, and for now, hug tight. Tonight's show is in memory of Simchash Muel Ben Moshe. Please consider to go online and make a donation at maskparents.org so we can continue with all these wonderful informational shows and our programs Thank you and have a good night.
Do you have fatigue, brain fog, weight gain, gut problems, or unexplained symptoms? Dr. Kelman, an internist and pioneer in holistic functional medicine and best-selling author, can help. He finds the root causes through deeper testing methods and treats patients with natural compounds, hormone therapy, IV nutrition, and cutting-edge technologies. He's helped thousands of patients from all over the world, and he can help you, too. Call the Kelman Wellness Center at 833-MD-HELP-ME for more information about how Dr. Kelman can help you feel your best. That's 833-MD-HELP-ME. Learn more about the Kelman Wellness Center at kelmancenter.com. That phone number again, 833-MD-HELP-ME. That's 833-MD-HELP-ME. You don't sit behind a desk every day to earn a living. You're out and about making it happen. And sometimes you get a little bit behind on your paperwork. You know, like bookkeeping and paying your taxes. It's easy to get behind on paying your taxes. It happens to the best of us. And you know what happens next. The big bad IRS comes knocking on your door. And when that happens, you need to call the good old boys at the tax doctor. Let them do what they do best. Deal and negotiate with the IRS so you pay the lowest you can in back taxes that the law allows. We are a 100% U.S.-based company, and we've saved our clients millions over the years in back taxes. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, call my friends right now at the tax doctor and learn more. 800-816-4492. Are you interested in hosting your own radio show and podcast, or perhaps a TV program? Talkline Network can help you get on the air from one hour weekly to 24 hours a day. Ideal for ethnic, foreign language, medical, business, and religious broadcasting. We also have full-time radio stations for lease, as well as FM HD channels. For more information, please call 212-769-1925. That's 212-769-1925. Or email zevrenner at gmail.com.